I know I said we would do part two of deep listening this week, but I have something even better. And don't worry, we'll do part two next week. But for right now, I am so excited for you to meet my friend, Dan Benaim, who I recently caught up with. Dan is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, researching U.S. policy in the Middle East, as well as a visiting lecturer at NYU. Previously, Dan served as a Middle East policy advisor and foreign policy speechwriter at the White House, the Department of State, and the U.S. Senate. Dan wrote speeches for Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and John Kerry. In other words, y'all, Dan Benayim knows a thing or two about communicating. His work has been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, and the New Republic, just to name a few. And what's so magical about my friendship with Dan is that it began 17 years ago, literally in the waters of the Aegean Sea in Greece. It was pre-9-11, pre-Dan becoming the fancy pants foreign policy slash speechwriting guru that he is today, pre-marriage, pre-kids. It's been a long-standing friendship, and I've had the privilege of watching his career progress. But I never get the chance to talk shop with him. I never get to ask him the nerdy speechwriting communication questions I've always wanted to ask but never seem to find the time to when we finally do reconnect. So this, friends, is the conversation I've been dying to have for a long time. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, so these are the questions that I've always wanted to ask you, Dan, whenever I see you. But whenever I see you, we have to do the catch up, like how's your life stuff. So I'm so excited to ask you this very basic Dan question, which is, how did you get into speech writing, especially at the level you got into speech writing? Like, how did it happen? You know, the, the truth is that I kind of stumbled into this. When we met, I was 22 years old, and I was a pre-med English major who liked rock music and traveling and uh, literature, and I knew I loved words. I knew I liked other countries, mostly because I went there backpacking around, having fun, traveling, eating, etc. Yeah, my but first really experience know... with Dan Benaim was Dan in Birkenstocks, which is uh, a far is cry true. from now. <laughs> Well, I, I like to think that our, our whole friendship was forged on the basis of my own uh, physical cowardice. Because when we <laughs> met, I, I was actually about standing on a cliff. And, and just for the sake of my pride, we'll call it a cliff and we'll say it was 20 feet high. <laughs> uh, nobody fact-checked that in Santorini. And uh, my buddies had just jumped into the water. I was sort of standing up there thinking long and hard about it. One minute became two minutes, became five minutes. My knees were maybe chattering a bit. And overswam uh, Bronwyn and, and, and some friends of hers, fresh off their work at a tech company with a severance package to burn off. Oh, and uh, did we ever. Some fun to have. Basically, they called up and said, what, are you going to take all day? And, and within a second, I hurled myself off that <laughs> cliff. Uh, and, uh, and we became uh, lifelong friends. And not just that, but one of my friends in that water went back on the shore and met Bronwyn's friend who became his wife. Yeah, that was magic. So... Yeah. And also, if I'm being totally honest, I saw these fine young things swimming in the water and I was like, hello, American boys. And I, I mean, my <laughs> lasciviousness is part of the dynamic that brought us together, too. So let's just, yeah, let's just give credit where credit is all due. Let's take two of the seven sins. Exactly. It's exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but at that point, I had no idea what I was going to do and be. I really didn't. And, you know, that was the summer of 2001. And in a strange way, what sort of cemented all of my pieces together 
was the experience of being a New Yorker on 9-11 mm-hmm. and, and suddenly understanding, feeling this calling to kind of be part of helping America find its way in the world, being pretty disturbed by the way the Bush administration responded to 9-11 and to the Iraq war and suddenly basically realizing that all these different pieces that I had, the writing, the travel, the immigrant family from across the Middle East, all could kind of be refused together to, to be something that added up to writing and foreign policy. At that time, I was pre-med, I was taking the MCAT, I was working in a lab. But I got done with all of that, and I basically went straight into journalism, then found my way to graduate school, set out to be you know, some kind of a foreign policy writer with no idea that, that, that really the job I would have, speechwriter to the Secretary of State, even existed. And it was only through meeting a wonderful speechwriter friend of mine around that time, Megan Rooney, who wrote for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, that I even knew this job existed. And so I kind of followed her into it. Wow. You know, and you get started. And there's no school to become a speechwriter. I teach a speechwriting class now to graduate students, but there weren't even really classes like that 10 years ago when I was breaking in. And the truth is, you got to learn by doing. And, right. and that means finding a place where you can fail a little bit. You know, you gotta you got to jump in. But you need to make sure that you have a safe landing somehow. Was your safe landing like, let me let me try failing at the White House? Or did you do your oh, failing no, earlier no, no. somewhere else? Yeah, I did my failing earlier somewhere else. So basically, in 2006, I got out of graduate school. I went and did graduate school for foreign policy. And I got out and I went to work for uh, Senator John Kerry. And now in 2006... Basically, all the people who were with Kerry in 2004 were making a mass migration away from him toward Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, all the new flavors of the month who were going to run for president in 2008. And there was sort of a lone solitary figure running in the other direction, which was me. And so I was part of a sort of low point in Kerry's political career, but also sort of a wonderful rebuilding experience for him. And I got to come in as a junior speechwriter with a terrible salary. And basically write first drafts of speeches, which my boss at that time would rewrite and fix before they ever went to John Kerry. And I, I did that eventually, you know, for six months, a year, got my feet wet. And, and then that guy left to go join one of the campaigns, too. And suddenly there I was kind of doing it myself, making it happen, writing John Kerry's speech at the Democratic Convention, writing a speech about the Afghanistan war. I always knew I had a team with me. I always knew I had other smart people around, people whose judgment I trusted, old politicos, you know, Kerry himself, who was a pretty amazing speechwriter in his own right and a champion debater and, you know, a lot of fun to write for because he was one of the last people who really, the last major politicians who really believes that like a 20 to 30 minute speech on a complicated topic can change everything. Wow. You know, not just sound bites, not just a few things, but really lay it all out, put it all on the line and figure it out. Now, we're at a different moment with different fashions in politics when it comes to that kind of thing. Mm. Why give a 20 minute speech when you can write a single tweet? Oh, you know, God. but he really cared. And, and I, I kind of learned a tremendous amount from him. And pretty soon I felt ready to, to take that craft out from his Senate office and uh, out into the State Department and the White House and now out into the world. That's amazing. And I have a question for you about that particular chapter of your life and your career. Was there a certain thing that you learned 
just, I, for example, for me, when I was early on in my writing, getting paid to write, whether it was speeches or somebody else's, you know, sound bites for an interview, the feedback that I got that stayed with me for the rest of my life was that I was a very breathless writer. I still am. It's something I fight against constantly. I'm like hyperbolic, uber excited. And I've always, like, I've always got to bring that in. I remember the first really smart person I wrote for was like, girl, way too breathless. What was your breathless thing that you learned in that chapter. That's so funny. I like that about your writing. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't change that. Oh, but, well, I toned it down you know, quite a lot. Well, I, I think for me, you know, for me, I think that I tend to use commas where a period would be better. And I tend to <laughs> think in kind of multi-clause sentences. You know, the truth is I'm kind of like a wonky, egg-headed nerd. And when I'm not doing speech writing, I do foreign policy. And I look at kind of complicated foreign policy issues. Yeah. So when it comes to really sort of the very simple task of communicating plainly, of not trying to show you're the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. but just telling the undistilled, simple, essential truth, that takes discipline on my part. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you can end up with a sort of like, while X is true, Y is also true. And yeah. let's not forget Z. Yeah. And like, that's the way that I think that's my own personal struggle when I try to write, especially for politicians. That makes so much sense. In fact, it reminds me of that thing that Tom Brokaw said in some interview he gave. They said something along the lines of people don't want you to tell them necessarily what happened exactly. They want you to tell them what it means. Right. And I'm always trying to get whenever I help people give like TED Talks or big things, it's like, don't just give all the nuance and the details, interpret it for them. And that, of course, has a shadow side, which is the freaking tweetable, tiny blurb that should be more thoughtful. But I think that tweetable thing is reflective of the public's wish for somebody to just tell them what the fuck is going on and what it means. No, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, actually, something that you said to me that I found super helpful when I was switching from speech writing for politicians to giving talks in my own name was not to try to tell people everything, you know, and for me, that was how my imposter syndrome manifest was basically me feeling like, well, I've just been to Egypt and spent a month there. But what if there's somebody out there who knows even more than I do, you know, and is just going to sort of stand up there and be like, why, actually, your whole conception is wrong you know, and expose me in some way. Mm. But, you know, and so I think I felt like I needed to show 27 things that I understood about Egypt to preempt that. When in reality, it's just like you say, people want to be led along. They want you to take them on a journey that's entertaining and gives them what they need to know. But when you're trying to prove everything that, that you know, you can kind of take a bunch of uh, rabbit holes off that main path that aren't always helpful. And that don't serve him. No, that's right. And there's an even weirder corollary to this whole thing in foreign policy, which is that you're going all the time and talking to people as as an American about their own countries. You know, you go and foreign policy speech writing is is for me the, the heart of what I do. And it's where my different passions meet, you know. But you're going and you're talking to the king of Jordan or, or to the you know, Jordanian university students and you're telling them and now they've forgotten more about the story of Jordan than you'll ever know. Right. They're experts. You go That's to Papua right. New Guinea with the secretary of state and, and it's not like you're suddenly become a leading expert on Papua New Guinea compared to the people of Papua New Guinea. Right. But, you know, you can call on those experts. But the weirdest part about this is that those people want to hear how you tell their story. That's right. And so in a way you end up telling people about things that they know more about than you to show them that you understand them in a way. 
So there's a very strange ritual. You go to Korea and you tell them, you pay tribute to the accomplishments of, of the Korean people and, and tell them in part their own story and kind of what it means for the present day. That's an unusual thing, that, that particular kind of storytelling in the work that I do. And it, you got to be really careful. It's quite a tightrope to walk because you don't want to get it wrong. It really is. And I feel like we, you know, when you look at the history of American foreign policy, I just finished that book, The Sympathizer, which I emailed you about, mm, um, about yeah. the, the American war, quote unquote, which is what the Vietnamese call the Vietnam War. And you just look at like, we come from such a long history of Americans, quote unquote, thinking they know, you know, and then there's all the unintended consequences of, of maybe some of the misguided policy that's led us to places that maybe we shouldn't be, or taking positions that are problematic. And so I imagine that that is like extra sensitive and, and frightening to imagine like we're doing the best we can, but we are ultimately coming at this from an American point of view, which is just limited. No, I think that's exactly right. And people, you know, diplomacy, sometimes it can be like a little bit of a hothouse flower. And I try to kind of get out from those strictures and, and write for people really talking to people in other countries. But, you know, for example, when we were at the State Department, you list America's allies in East Asia Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, and you list them out. And we once listed South Korea in front of Japan. And we got a démarche from the Japanese embassy. And they said, was this an intentional slight? And did you mean to put South Korea in front of us? And should we infer anything about U.S. policy from this? Wow. You know, and so it can be this very specialized language. I don't think that's the most constructive way to do things, especially because governments have surrendered a lot of their power to people in the last 50 to 100 years. Mm. And so you've really got to talk to the people as well as the governments. And the people don't speak that specialized technocratic language. And they don't say things like, you know, we have demonstrated that a policy ecosystem of progressive economic development <laughs> delivers results. You know, that's just not how people, that's not how humans converse. But what's such a trip to me is you think about that really sophisticated, nuanced, delicate, you know, as fine China, delicate maneuvering that you describe with, you know, the moving of one name to a different place. And then you contrast it like less than a year later, our foreign policy was being conducted via Twitter. Like it's 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 like nauseating and and whiplash giving. It's crazy. It, it is. And in a way, there's a part of it. And look, I'm not a great fan of this president. I worked for the last vice president and secretary of state. President Obama is one of the most inspiring people in my own life, easily on the very, very short list, along with members of my family and people that I know and love. Wow. But So I'm no fan of, of this gang. But the truth is that from a communications perspective, there are parts of what they do that I absolutely hate, this, this demonizing of other people and other Americans and... and kind of habitual lying, but there's something that they have right, which is going to be important for us to figure out how to respond to, which is sort of a kick in the pants to all progressive communicators, not to try to just be the smartest person in the room, but to say things that are simple and clear and human and resonate, not to just speak this sort of bloodless technocratic language. That's safe. Of, that's safe and that, that, that doesn't hit people in their guts. Yeah. 
And that's actually a core part. I think I can't remember if you and I talked about this before, but when I help people create a talk, not a speech, because to me, to me, they're two very different things. But a talk, uh, it doesn't, you know, it's not behind a podium. It's not written down. It's 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 committed in part to memory, but there's a lot more to. It. Anyway, I always plot an emotional arc. What do we want the audience to feel at the beginning and the middle and the end? Because you know, neuroscience shows that we remember the emotional dimensions of an experience way more than we remember anything else. And That's I, exactly right. And I find that what was blowing my mind is on the campaign trail, you could see that there were two candidates that really stirred people emotionally for better or worse, and that was Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And it was it was a trip to watch it play out. But but I do think you're right. I think that is a kick in the butt. And it's a great reminder that, you know, in our culture, we demonize the use of emotion as we communicate, especially in business and certainly in some ways in, in, in more sophisticated expressions of politics. But I do agree with you. I think that is a positive thing. But just to pick up on a thread you mentioned earlier, you talked about the imposter syndrome. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar with it, that's that's the the little voice inside of you that says, oh my God, I'm going to be found out. Any minute, these people are going to find out that I'm not as smart or as accomplished as I think I am, and I'm going to get kicked off the planet. That's basically what the imposter syndrome is. But when you went to the White House for the first time, Dan, were you like, hell yeah, I belong here? Or did you get that gnawing suspicion that somebody's going to pull you out of there and figure out who you really are? Definitely had the gnawing suspicion. You know, and I think the thing is, sometimes you really just have to sort of weather that kind of thing. It changes over so fast. I mean, you go, you know, you put in 16 hour days in government and on the first day you're in awe of the august surroundings. And on the fifth day, you're kind of in awe of a chance to take a nap, like because you're (laughs) kind of like, you know, and then and then by the time you know what you're doing and you finally kind of been through every crucible and you've brief the vice president and spoken up in a meeting where you're afraid to speak up and written things you were afraid were going to get rejected and sent things around for clearance. You know, a lot of the time, the very worst things you really thought were going to happen, variations on them do happen. And you just realize that they were survivable. I've certainly been chewed out and I have to say, I did not enjoy it, but I also (laughs) live to tell, you know, I live to tell and I, I was a better staffer at the end. And, you know, being able to have the absolute shit kicked out of you in the course of your work life and just come back the next day ready to learn from that experience and be a better version of you and not be embittered and and just take it as part of your service to the country, part of your own personal growth is really important because politics in particular is definitely a contact sport. People working 18 hours a day, you know, on this kind of stuff don't suffer fools lightly. You know, some days everybody is a fool. You know, being able to pick yourself up from that kind of experience and be resilient is just mission critical to being this kind of a staffer or writer or anything around government. I think that is so, so powerful because I feel like I spend a lot of time helping people with techniques for not taking things personally. Because the minute we take something personally, the whole thing falls apart. We fall apart. We don't glean any of the wisdom that's coming at us because we're so tender from the shit kicking, you know, that we're getting. And it's such an important part of our growth. And I was just speaking, I interviewed a psychologist yesterday who is just wonderful. And he had some interesting techniques for and 
enduring a real whooping. And he was like, you can, you know, cartoonize the person, see them as playing a role, all these different things. You know, I love the idea of seeing people symbolically. Like, it's not that this guy thinks I'm a bad person. It's this man or this woman is representing the idea of really hard feedback. And this is my opportunity to determine how the person I am when I'm getting hard feedback. And what was your technique? Like, how did you endure it? Well, you know, I think, I, I won't say I loved it. <laughs> kind of like a Turkish it. bath. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that could be its own podcast. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I won't say that I loved it. But the truth is, you know, you keep yourself focused on the mission. You have a team all around you who ideally are there to help you. I mean, I remember once getting off of a military plane and having gotten chewed out for some speech I did. And the guys, you know, the guys who staff the plane who give everybody nuts and soda and stuff, put their arm around me and we're like, we think you're a good guy, Dan. Oh, my <laughs> but, God. Uh, That's amazing. You know, and those guys were, were my brothers. They were fantastic. But the truth is, like, it's also, you know, this stuff happens. It's part of work life. But it's also, you know, it's each of us have the power to decide how we treat other people, too. Yeah. And that's I think that's part of it. But, you know, it's just the cost of, of being in the room sometimes, you know, and being in the conversation and having an opportunity to do something that you care about. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, there, there's no nobody said that any of this stuff was supposed to be easy or effortless. And usually there's growth buried in it. You know, I tend to, th- I agree with you about not taking it personally. And I think that's, you know, I think often about this book, Difficult Conversations. Oh, I love that where book. They, Yeah, where they talk about, you know, three layers of, of difficult conversation. What happened, which is one layer, then whose fault is it, which is, you know, an even harder layer. But then the really nuclear level is this sort of third level conversation about who am I? Sometimes people will go nuclear and they'll go straight to that third level and say, you're a this or you're a that. Yep. But, you know, they usually, it depends on who and where, but, you know, sometimes you hear that, you know, you you can avoid that third level or just take the third level input as the first or second level input that you really want to hear and that usually the other person means. Yep. You know, but also like, I think over time, I try to treat people with care and decency and respect and, and so have the overwhelming majority of people that I worked for and with. And I think, you know, that's something that's really worth cultivating. And that's something that's really valuable. And whenever I hear about a politician who does that, even if I disagree with their policies, it's something that I just take note of, that I, I admire when I hear it. And I, even if there's somebody who I agree with a ton, who gives a rousing uh, rah-rah speech, and I hear that their staff are all beleaguered and, and uh, desperate, I, it, it kind of just takes the joy out of it for me. Yeah. So I think kindness really has a place in today's world. It doesn't always show when you look at the president's Twitter, but I really think there's a hunger out there for kindness and decency and basic interpersonal respect. I love this Mr. Rogers movie that I just saw, Won't <gasps> You Be My you Neighbor? Did you see it? I'm dying to see it. I just want to give a strong Dan Benayim endorsement <laughs> to Won't You Be My Neighbor. Oh. It is a fantastic meditation on individual grace and kindness and where you can find it and how you can use it in the form of a documentary about this man, Fred Rogers. I really think that that's something that's underrated in the world. And it's something that as a communicator, whenever I find that I'm writing about this or talking about respect, respect, decency, courtesy mm. in a basic language, 
you see heads start to nod. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a universal hunger. And I do think there is a time in your career when you take your lumps, you accept the thrashings that come with the gig. But at a certain point, I also believe that each of us is able and empowered to determine what we will and will not accept from other people. In fact, the, my favorite moment in my career is when I decided, you know what? I no longer take on clients or work with people who raise their voice at me or who go to that third level of nasty. I just don't do it. And as a result, every interaction, every client I work with is pure joy. It's like being in a state of total flow. So I do think like there is a time to take your lumps and do the learnings. And every so often somebody will get through the cracks and I'll have to deal with it. And it's a good learning experience. But I also believe like at a certain point, you do get to say, you know what? No, I don't work with assholes anymore. (laughs) No, I think that's right. Look, I think in general, people say this about going into government all the time. There's a big debate in our community about whether people should go and work in this Donald Trump administration because you're serving the country, but you're going to be put in a tough position Mm. ethically, depending on what you believe. You know, and Richard Clark, who was the old counterterrorism czar under Clinton and Bush, used to say that every person should come into service in an administration with a resignation letter in their desk, ready to go. And if you feel like if things went beyond the point where you'd feel comfortable, you couldn't sign that letter and walk out, then you shouldn't take the job. Wow. God, that's so powerful. Because so, I imagine the snowball gets moving pretty friggin' fast, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're testifying before Congress. Oh, yeah. David Brooks has this wonderful line where he says that the Faustian bargain, meaning selling your soul to the devil like yeah. happens in Faust, the Faustian bargain happens on the installment plan in Washington. Oh, my God. That just is heartbreaking and true, I would imagine. Oh, Yeah. So happens slowly and then all at once. And then all at once. Yeah. And everybody's doing it. Oh God, it's just vile. But let me ask you some questions about craft um, because I'm a, I am a nerd for this stuff as I know you are. When you got into the highest levels of speech writing, what was the prevailing wisdom about how to craft a really great foreign policy speech? And did you push back on it or did you add your own flair? Or did you find that you disagreed? I'm just, I'm just curious about, because when I first got into my work, 10 plus years ago, I was kind of seen, I I was a little bit radical for things back then. Now it's very mainstream, but I'm just curious, did you find that you were like, oh God, this is really confining and wanted to push out? Or how was it for you? Because DC is a totally different jam from Silicon Valley. People in DC are a lot more comfortable with conventional wisdom, I think, than than the folks on on your coast. (laughs) But, you know, look, I think that there is sort of a prevailing wisdom. And I see this with my students who come in too. And I wonder if Trump will change this, but he hasn't yet. That what speechwriting is, is sort of like coining the perfect Kennedy-esque slogan, you know, ask not what your country can do for you. You know, (laughs) like basically like the job of the speechwriter, forget Microsoft Word, just take a chisel, find some marble and write 12 memorable words in a row. And like there you're done. And and that's just not ever how I thought about this, maybe in part because I approached this more as a policy wonk than kind of an aspiring Faulkner in politics. Like that was just never my, and there are wonderful, wonderful speechwriters I know who care much less about policy knowledge than I do. So it's certainly, you can do that other thing, but I think about it as trying to sort of tell the truth memorably. And that's, you know, that's sort of how I think about it. You know, and, and that's a kind of a different different task and a different tenor. So instead of sort of henceforth, we shall all this sort of like language and musical language that kind of 
can be memorable and fun, but sort of sounds like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know, like at the end of the day, that stuff is fun and musical and, and can be beautiful. But the biggest problem right now is mistrust. And people don't trust politicians. They hate each other. They lose track of their common humanity. You know, they get kind of fired up by Twitter. I know I do. I think a really good speech finds some way to cut through those pre-existing expectations to get at something that's really true. You know, in the 1940s, George Orwell, in a, in a five-page essay called Politics and the English Language, which I think is probably the single best thing that a writer or an aspiring writer can read to reground themselves in this kind of truth-telling mission, mm. he says, talking about this fight of communism and fascism, that in our times, the language of politics is the language of defending the indefensible. Mm. You know, and it's all this sort of sloganeering of jackbooted thugs and jackals, capitalist jackals, and it's all this sort of cartoonifying language that takes people and sort of dehumanizes them and takes complicated problems and makes them something that's just sort of like, you know, cartoonish and, and, and sort of takes a big complicated world and like fits it, shrinks it down to fit on a postcard or a tweet, you know. And I guess I'm not about that. You know, he has these amazing examples in that essay where he says, we talk about, you know, the incineration of large chunks of forests with all the people and livestock in it. And we call that pacification. And it's just, it's about how political language is the language of the indefensible and about how fuzzy language, imprecise language, insufficiently vivid language is a sort of handmaiden to cruelty and inhumanity in policy. Amen. And how inhumanity in policy depends in turn on language that doesn't expose its essential cruelty, but sort of dresses it up. That Orwell idea of trying to tell the real truth, that there's a moral dimension to speaking truth in politics, to me is a sort of watchword. Now, you can't always do that. You go to the State Department, and there's a very different ethos there. You're trying to sort of jump in the water without making a splash when you're there. Sometimes there are some people who feel that way. You know, I remember we once got asked a question about what do you say about the fact that Saudi Arabia beheads more people than ISIS? And the State Department didn't respond by condemning beheading. They initially wrote this, this draft talking points that said, we don't condone beheading in any country. You know, <laughs> just so we're clear. Just so we're clear. You know, I mean, there's a fascinating debate about that where some people were like, well, dead is dead. You know. It doesn't matter how. But the point was that we don't condone beheading was kind of one of those moments when Orwell would roll over in his grave. You know, wow. so, so that happens for sure. But like that idea that the language of politics is the language of the indefensible and that, that the job of a good writer and a good writer in politics is to tell a vivid, memorable truth that helps people sort of find their own moral path forward is to me a watchword of what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's a pretty good one sentence diagnosis for what's so terribly wrong with the communication of our current president. Yeah, God. It's oh my God, the when I hear you use those words like oversimplification and cartoonizing, I think of the propaganda from from Nazi Germany. I mean, it was that was that was their jam. That was their whole modus operandi. Hundred percent. But it's scary to say those words out loud because what an indictment to compare the current communication style of our current president with that. It's just a really strong statement to make, but I can't help but make that connection as so many others are making when he talks about immigrants the way he does. It's just a scary, it's a scary situation, but. It, it is a scary time. And sometimes those co comparisons can sort of distract more than they illuminate. Yeah. But there is some 
essential demonization of other people that is going on now that has gone on and preceded a lot of other pretty regrettable moments in history. So we should have our, our ears and hearts heads open up. to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Heads up. Heads up, eyes open. So just to shift back to kind of the craft question, I'm curious about this. Have you ever in, in your role, I'm sure you have, been in a situation where you've written a speech for someone and they go through with their edits and they decide to do something thematically or just take the speech somewhere where you think it's either really dangerous or really boring or really lame? And how do you handle that? Like, you have very good taste, Dan, and the people you're working with, I'm sure, do too. But what do you do when you disagree? You know, it happens all the time. I mean, language is complicated and it's subtle. I mentioned that I think in commas sometimes... You know, it's possible to overthink this stuff. It happens all the time. And you don't even have to disagree on a big issue. Yeah, It can be something very small. I once got in an argument about whether a candidate should say what matters is that we killed bin Laden or what matters is that we got bin Laden. Uh. And to me, the killing was less important than the getting. But for political purposes, you know, the getting was sort of insufficiently vivid, you know. And so that kind of thing happens all the time little differences, not just policy differences, but tonal differences, you know, things that, that, you know, might offend some other audience that I might, as a policy wonk, be more attuned to, Mm. but somebody else speaking to a different audience might say, well, that's actually fine. It's so much pressure, though, because I feel like speeches given, especially at the White House level, they're they're documents that are preserved in the halls of time for all to read generations from now. Do you feel that burden? Do you feel like, oh, my God, you know, some student 25 years from now is going to look back at the speech to look for a precedent set on how we talked about Egypt post, you know, Arab Spring? You know what I mean? Like, is that heavy? Totally. And I'm sure that I'm sure that if I went through all of these speeches, I'd find plenty of things to write that I regret. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, that kind of as a mentor of mine says, planning is something that's best done in retrospect, you know. (laughs) But uh, look, yes, of course, of course, that can be heady. And of course, you can have those moments. But, you know, if you just thought about that all the time, number one, you'd probably write worse speeches. Yeah. And number two, you'd, you'd be like young Dan sitting on that 20-foot cliff <laughs> with vertigo that wouldn't let me jump off it and live my life. So you can't do that. You got to just kind of live it in the present. But the thing is also, and this is an essential part of writing for other people, and it's different if you've got your novel or your poem or your magazine article, or if you're giving your own speech. When you're writing for somebody else, at the end of the day, it's their reputation that is on the line. If they stand up and say what they want to say. They're the one who's going into the lion's den. You know, they're the one who's going to have the Breitbart article about them the next day mangling what they said. And one of the wonderful things about working for Joe Biden is that he really let it rip. Yeah. He really let it rip. He said awesome stuff. Occasionally he said things that he wished he could have said differently <laughs> that came out odd or peculiar. But you know, he connected with people and he said a lot, a lot, a lot of meaningful stuff that really hit people in their guts. Mm. And he wasn't afraid to make a mistake sometimes in trying to do that. And he did make them and he would come clean. And if he did, you know, that made him a wonderful person to work for because you realize that like, you know, you're not going to turn into a puddle if you get a bad newspaper article. I mean, and that's the thing about imposter syndrome is that it rests on some impossible idea of perfection and deservingness. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things, to go back to your earlier point, that you can do is just to say, okay, I'm worried that this is going to happen. 
what would I do if it did? Yeah. What would happen then? Yeah. You know, Biden gives a speech and it has a mistake in it and I feel lousy about it. I'll go and apologize to him. And, and I have done that. You know, if there's some other issue or if there's something that I regret in a speech in 2013 because of what happened subsequently in the Middle East, you know, everybody lives. Everybody yeah. lives to yeah. fight another day here. That's right. I think that is so right. And I think our egos are so, you know, if we live from that small nervous voice that just needs us, needs to maintain perfection all the time, we won't ever live. I mean, it it becomes a shell of a life. Exactly. And just knowing the difference between a setback and a catastrophe is like the most important part of doing a hard job. That is exactly right. And I feel like our catastrophe meters are way too sensitive, generally speaking, across the board. I think it's, it's from hunting and gathering. I think we I can think blame right. our hunter-gatherer ancestors I think you're who right. couldn't figure out what to do if there was a fact-checking error in a speech <laughs> and thought that the, the closest <laughs> analogy was being chased by a lion. I feel so bad for our like Neanderthalic relatives because with the whole with neuroscience showing us all these new things about our brain. It's I feel like the saber-toothed tiger chasing us. Like the Neanderthals get blamed for a lot of our current neurological shortcomings. Have you noticed this? Well, and now they're back in power. So <laughs> <laughs> They'll have their revenge on us, yeah. Well said, well said. So I have a totally different line of question for you, and we'll close with this. Fire away. I just concluded doing an eight-week online course, which I've never taught an online course before. It was so fun and so nerve-wracking. But it was about time. It was uh, time debt was the, the, the state we were trying to help people overcome, which is basically spending time you don't have in ways that just really don't add up to much. And it leads to a life half lived. And it was eight weeks. It was fabulous. I loved it. But one of the main themes of it was overcoming this feeling that all of us have, at least I know here in the Valley, and I'm sure New York and the East Coast, is this feeling of scarcity around time and not having enough of it and being beat down by it and stretched too thin. And my clients deal with this constantly. They just constantly feel like they don't have enough time to think. They're just in doing mode. But then I think about people like Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. These are people that are literally flying all over the world in their the peak of their, you know, public service and giving all kinds of time. How did those guys perceive time? How did they move yeah. through a day? You know, it's a really great question and it's a very hard one to answer. I'm not them, I would say. And, you know, I, I often joke that people think that speech writing is a sexy profession, but you end up spending a lot of your day inside the mind of a 70-year-old man or woman. You know, <laughs> I'm just 40. But I think that How do they think about time? They have a whole team of people around them who they trust, who they support, who make them comfortable, who think about their preferences, and who really try to make their time count, you know. And I think that really is something very different. And you find all kinds of ways to achieve that sort of simplicity. Mm. You know, you travel all around the world and you lay out the block of hotel rooms the same, you know, like, like the way a band would have a rider asking for all kinds of things so that you have some degree of homogeneity, mm. whether you're in Singapore or Sao Paulo. You sleep at night, you got to get enough sleep. And I think that one of the first things, mistakes that people make, if you're a principal, is thinking that you have to do everything and that, that the sun won't rise if you're not making it happen. You need to be able to delegate to other people. And so we would travel all around the world together and we'd, we'd sit and talk for a couple of hours on Air Force Two or on the Secretary of State's plane. And we'd talk through the speech and I'd have it done 
you know, way in advance. And he'd say, you know, Danny, I really like that. And I really don't like that. And go do this and find a different way to say that. And here you really need to talk to so-and-so on the national security staff and general so-and-so about this part. And I would say, okay, great. And then the vice president would go to sleep to make sure he had five, six, seven hours before he would land in a totally different time zone in a different part of the world to have high stakes diplomatic meetings, not to be operating at a total deficit. And I wouldn't sleep, but then he would go have these meetings and I would, you know, post up somewhere for a nap. I took a wonderful nap once in the American embassy in Paris in a nice piece of Louis XIV's furniture. Uh, (laughs) You know, I, I think the strategic napping on the part of the staff helps. But the truth is like, Your whole goal is to give that person what they need to perform well, to serve the country. And if they figure out how to count on you, that helps. There's a tremendous support network of what they call mill aides, which are basically people who, you know, have had impressive careers in the military. I I worked, you know, Biden's military aide at one point was a guy named John Flynn, who had been in dogfights as a pilot with jets that were kind of menacing his jet and he couldn't shoot them down or it would start an international conflict. Oh, my God. But, you know, this kind of thing, these are amazing people. That's the guy who's handling the vice president's paper flow, requests, meetings, phone calls, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, along with his his executive assistant, who's been with him for many, many years. Mm. So you learn to trust other people. You care about them. They make you feel comfortable. And in that way, you get through it, you know, and and they're not sitting all day reading Twitter. They're not sitting, you know, they have something to do and they figure it out. And certainly some of them waste time or do things in an inefficient way. And some people are are more military. Mm. The other thing I would say is that you have to know yourself, right? And you have to know your own patterns, your own energy. And some people, you know, can get by on three hours of sleep for five days in a row and do okay. And if you work for one of those people, you're in trouble because they're going to want you to stay up with them and play cards with them and talk with them, oh et cetera. God. But you got to kind of know what you can do. A lot of these staffers around top politicians are just biologically different. And they're just going through a phase of incredibly taxing living where they sleep four or five, six hours a night. They answer five emails on three Blackberries every four minutes, and they're never more than a couple seconds away. And they're doing this thing to within an inch of their lives. But those people then go off and recharge, go off and do different things, get older. For me, staying physically healthy while doing this kind of thing and not just sort of eating to stay awake was a tremendous challenge. But, you know, everybody, just because you're there day and night, you know, there's no there's nowhere else to go. That's amazing. But yeah, I would I I think, you know, they experience time in a very strange way because time bends to them. Things bend to their schedule. People come see them. When you're a staffer, you wait around a lot. It's funny, like there's just these moments where you're sitting outside the vice president's office and his phone call uh, with whoever he's talking to before he talks to you goes 40 minutes longer than you think. And so you just got this dead air and you're incredibly busy, but your time is not the time that matters most. And having your time be the time that matters most when you're a CEO or a politician or a vice president or whoever, or a president, I think gives you a sort of streamlining force that if you're smart, you figure out how to use to do your job as well as you can. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So Dan, this has been an absolute joy. And I love hearing you in your element because every time I see you, it's sort of social and I don't ever get to hear you in your professional role, except for when I Skyped into your NYU class. That was really fun. Any parting thoughts, any words of wisdom for anybody listening who's, 
you know, they're not in politics necessarily, but they're trying to tell the truth in a memorable way. Any any parting thoughts? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on here. I mean, I think all the time about the things that you told me about how to give a good speech when we did our informal coaching sessions. I really do. It was the most helpful advice that I got. You know, so the first thing I would say if you're listening is talk to Bronwyn. <laughs> Hire Bronwyn. <laughs> Unless you're already her friend, in which case prevail on her to give you this advice for free. But, you know, the thing is that there's no way out from where we are except for through. And we're dealing with a lot of bitter disagreements about what truth is, about how people should be treated, etc. And the thing that I would say is it's not so much about turning the other cheek, but about figuring out a way to be part of the kind of debate that you want to be part of, not taking the bait and trying to see everybody's humanity, even when you disagree with them the most bitterly. Because I just think that we're not going to win a pig wrestle here. Those of us who don't like the direction of the country under Trump are not going to win a pig wrestle or a resentment contest. Amen. We're going to have to find a way to inspire people. And we're going to have to find a way for a larger portion of the population to feel treated with respect. And going back to that Orwell idea that language, political language and political morality are really inseparably linked. Mm -hmm. That means talking to people in words that they can understand. It means resisting kind of glib abstraction or name calling or brick throwing in favor of like real truth telling. And that truth telling can be, you can score political points with it, but just, you know, Make it be about the truth. And I think then if we can do that, you know, a lot of people will be hurt in the meantime, but we'll eventually find ourselves a soft landing as a country. I love it. Dan, thank you so, so much. Take good care and enjoy your summer. I will. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. 